Welcome to this week in medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Looking to stay up to date with the latest medical research but short on time? This week in medicine has you covered. Our AI-generated podcast provides you with a convenient, on-the-go solution to keep you informed about the most significant developments in the medicine field. We understand that your time is valuable, so we've done the hard work for you. Each episode offers a filtered and concentrated summary of key journal articles, allowing you to stay informed without the need to sift through pages of research papers. With This Week in Medicine, listening is faster than reading, and you can consume valuable medical knowledge while commuting, exercising, or during your daily routine. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hi, This Week in Medicine, we will be discussing. First we will be discussing articles in New England Journal of Medicine Apixaban for Stroke Prevention in Subclinical Atrial Fibrillation. Background Subclinical atrial fibrillation is short-lasting and asymptomatic and can usually be detected only by long-term continuous monitoring with pacemakers or defibrillators. Subclinical atrial fibrillation is associated with an increased risk of stroke by a factor of 2.5, however, treatment with oral anticoagulation is of uncertain benefit. Methods We conducted a trial involving patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation lasting 6 minutes to 24 hours. Patients were randomly assigned in a double-blind, double-dummy designed to receive apixaban at a dose of 5 mg twice daily, 2.5 mg twice daily when indicated, or aspirin at a dose of 81 mg daily. The trial medication was discontinued and anticoagulation started if subclinical atrial fibrillation lasting more than 24 hours or clinical atrial fibrillation developed. The primary efficacy outcome, stroke or systemic embolism, was assessed in the intention to treat population, all the patients who had undergone randomization, the primary safety outcome, major bleeding, was assessed in the on-treatment population, all the patients who had undergone randomization, and received at least one dose of the assigned trial drug, with follow-up censored five days after permanent discontinuation of trial medication for any reason. Results We included 4,012 patients with a mean, plus or minus, age of 76.8 plus or minus 7.6 years and a mean CHOD 2 DS2 VOSC score of 3.9 plus or minus 1.1, scores range from 0 to 9, with higher scores indicating a higher risk of stroke, 36.1% of the patients were women. After a mean follow-up of 3.5 plus or minus 1.8 years, stroke or systemic embolism occurred in 55 patients in the apixaban group, 0.78% per patient year, and in 86 patients in the aspirin group, 1.24% per patient year, hazard ratio, 0.63, 95% confidence interval C, 0.45 to 0.88, P equals 0.007. In the on-treatment population, the rate of major bleeding was 1.71% per patient year in the apixaban group and 0.94% per patient year in the aspirin group, hazard ratio, 1.80. 95% C, 1.26 to 2.57, P equals 0.001. Fatal bleeding occurred in 5 patients in the apixaban group and 8 patients in the aspirin group. Conclusions Among patients with subclinical atrial fibrillation, apixaban resulted in a lower risk of stroke or systemic embolism than aspirin but a higher risk of major bleeding.
Repatriktinib in Ras 1 fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer. Background. The early generation Ras 1 tyrosine kinase inhibitors, TKIs, that are approved for the treatment of Ras 1 fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer, NSCLC, have anti-tumor activity, but resistance develops in tumors, and an intracranial activity is suboptimal. Repatriktinib is a next-generation Ras1 TKI with preclinical activity against Ras1 fusion-positive cancers, including those with resistance mutations such as Ras1G2032R. Methods In this registrational phase 1-2 trial, we assess the efficacy and safety of repatriktinib in patients with advanced solid tumors, including Ras1 fusion-positive and SCLC. The primary efficacy endpoint in the phase 2 trial was confirmed objective response, Efficacy analyzes included patients from phase 1 and phase 2. Duration of response, progression-free survival, and safety were secondary endpoints in phase 2. Results On the basis of results from the phase 1 trial, the recommended phase 2 dose of repatriktinib was 160 mg daily for 14 days, followed by 160 mg twice daily. Response occurred in 56 of the 71 patients, 79%, 95% confidence interval, C, 68-88, with ROS1 fusion-positive and SCLC who had not previously received a ROS1 TKI, the median duration of response was 34.1 months, 95% C, 25.6 to could not be estimated, and median progression-free survival was 35.7 months, 95% C, 27.4 to could not be estimated. Response occurred in 21 of the 56 patients, 38%, 95% C, 25-52, with ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC who had previously received one ROS1 TKI and had never received chemotherapy, the median duration of response was 14.8 months, 95% C, 7.6 to could not be estimated, and median progression-free survival was 9.0 months, 95% C, 6.8 to 19.6. 10 of the 17 patients, 59%, 95% C, 33-82, with the ROS1G2032R mutation had a response. A total of 426 patients received the Phase 2 dose. The most common treatment-related adverse events were dizziness, in 58% of the patients, dyskusia, in 50%, and paresthesia, in 30%, and 3% discontinued repatriktinib owing to treatment-related adverse events. Conclusions Repatriktinib had durable clinical activity in patients with ROS1 fusion-positive NSCLC, regardless of whether they had previously received a ROS1 TKI. Adverse events were mainly of low grade and compatible with long-term administration. Efficacy and safety of acoramides in transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy. Background Transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy is characterized by the deposition of misfolded monomeric transthyretin, TTR, in the heart. Acoramides is a high affinity TTR stabilizer that acts to inhibit dissociation of tetrameric TTR and leads to more than 90% stabilization across the dosing interval as measured ex vivo. Methods In this phase 3, double-blind trial, we randomly assigned patients with transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive acoramides hydrochloride at a dose of 800 mg twice daily or matching placebo for 30 months. 
Efficacy was assessed in the patients who had an estimated glomerular filtration rate of at least 30 milliliters per minute per 1.73 square meters of body surface area. The four-step primary hierarchical analysis included death from any cause, cardiovascular-related hospitalization, the change from baseline in the N-terminal probe type natriuretic peptide, NT-probent, level, and the change from baseline in the six-minute walk distance. We used the Finkelstein-Schoenfeld method to compare all potential pairs of patients within strata to generate a p-value. Key secondary outcomes were death from any cause, the six-minute walk distance, the score on the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire Overall Summary, and the serum TTR level. Results A total of 632 patients underwent randomization. The primary analysis favored acoramides over placebo, p less than 0.001, the corresponding win ratio was 1.8, 95% confidence interval, c, 1.4 to 2.2, with 63.7% of pairwise comparisons favoring acoramides and 35.9% favoring placebo. Together, death from any cause and cardiovascular-related hospitalization contributed more than half the wins and losses to the win ratio, 58% of all pairwise comparisons, and t pairwise comparisons yielded the highest ratio of wins to losses, 23.3% versus 7.0%. The overall incidence of adverse events was similar in the acormides group and the placebo group, 98.1% and 97.6%, respectively. Serious adverse events were reported in 54.6% and 64.9% of the patients. Conclusions In patients with transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy, the receipt of acormides resulted in a significantly better four-step primary hierarchical outcome containing components of mortality morbidity, and function than placebo. Adverse events were similar in the two groups. Two randomized trials of low-dose calcium supplementation in pregnancy. Background. The World Health Organization recommends 1,500 to 2,000 mg of calcium daily as supplementation, divided into three doses, for pregnant persons in populations with low dietary calcium intake in order to reduce the risk of preeclampsia. The complexity of the dosing scheme, however, has led to implementation barriers. Methods We conducted two independent randomized trials of calcium supplementation, in India and Tanzania, to assess the non-inferiority of a 500 mg daily dose to a 1,500 mg daily dose of calcium supplementation. In each trial, the two primary outcomes were preeclampsia and preterm birth, and the non-inferiority margins for the relative risks were 1.54 and 1.16, respectively. Results A total of 11,000 nulliparous pregnant women were included in each trial. The cumulative incidence of preeclampsia was 3.0% in the 500 mg group and 3.6% in the 1,500 mg group in the India trial, relative risk, 0.84, 95% confidence interval, c, 0.68 to 1.03, and 3.0% and 2.7%, respectively, in the Tanzania trial, relative risk, 1.10, 95% c, 0.88 to 1.36, findings consistent with a non-inferiority of the lower dose in both trials. 
The percentage of live births that were preterm was 11.4% in the 500 mg group and 12.8% in the 1,500 mg group in the India trial, relative risk, 0.89, 95% C, 0.80 to 0.98, which was within the non-inferiority margin of 1.16, in the Tanzania trial, the respective percentages were 10.4% and 9.7%, relative risk, 1.07, 95% C, 0.95 to 1.21, which exceeded the non-inferiority margin. Conclusions In these two trials, low-dose calcium supplementation was non-inferior to high-dose calcium supplementation with respect to the risk of preeclampsia. It was non-inferior with respect to the risk of preterm live birth in the trial in India but not in the trial in Tanzania. Next article from Journal of American Medical Association. Social Risk and Dialysis Facility Performance in the First Year of the ESRD Treatment Choices Model Importance the end-stage renal disease treatment choices, ETC, model randomly selected 30% of U.S. dialysis facilities to receive financial incentives based on their use of home dialysis, kidney transplant waitlisting, or transplant receipt. Facilities that disproportionately serve populations with high social risk have a lower use of home dialysis and kidney transplant raising concerns that these sites may fare poorly in the payment model. Objective to examine first-year etc. model performance scores and financial penalties across dialysis facilities, stratified by their incident patient's social risk. Design, setting, and participants across sectional study of 2,191 U.S. dialysis facilities that participated in the etc. model from January 1 through December 31, 2021. Exposure composition of incident patient population, characterized by the proportion of patients who were non-Hispanic Black, Hispanic, living in a highly disadvantaged neighborhood, uninsured, or covered by Medicaid at dialysis initiation. A facility-level composite social risk score assessed whether each facility was in the highest quintile of having zero, one, or at least two of these characteristics. Main outcomes and measures use of home dialysis, waitlisting, or transplant, model performance score, and financial penalization. Results using data from 125,984 incident patients, median age, 65 years, IQR, 54-74, 41.8% female, 28.6% black, 11.7% Hispanic, 1,071 dialysis facilities, 48.9%, had no social risk features, and 491, 22.4%, had two or more. In the first year of the etc. model, Compared with those with no social risk features, dialysis facilities with two or more had lower mean performance scores, 3.4 versus 3.6, P equals 0.002, and lower use of home dialysis, 14.1% versus 16.0%, P less than 0.001. These facilities had higher receipt of financial penalties, 18.5% versus 11.5%, P less than 0.001 more frequently had the highest payment cut of 5%, 2.4% versus 0.7%, P equals 0.003, and were less likely to achieve the highest bonus of 4%, 0% versus 2.7%, P less than 0.001. Compared with all other facilities, 
those in the highest quintile of treating uninsured patients or those covered by Medicaid experience more financial penalties, 17.4% versus 12.9%, P equals 0.01, as did those in the highest quintile in the proportion of patients who were black, 18.5% versus 12.6%, P equals 0.001. Conclusions in the first year of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services etc. model, dialysis facilities serving higher proportions of patients with social risk features had lower performance scores and experienced markedly higher receipt of financial penalties. <music> Measuring equity in readmission is a distinct assessment of hospital performance. Importance equity is an essential domain of health care quality. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, developed two disparity methods that together assess equity in clinical outcomes. Objectives to define a measure of equitable readmissions, identify hospitals with equitable readmissions by insurance, dual eligible versus non-dual eligible or patient race, black versus white, and compare hospitals with and without equitable readmissions by hospital characteristics and performance on accountability measures, quality, cost, and value. Design, setting, and participants' cross-sectional study of U.S. hospitals eligible for the CMS hospital-wide readmission measure using Medicare data from July 2018 through June 2019. Main outcomes and measures we created a definition of equitable readmissions using CMS disparity methods, which evaluate hospitals on two methods, outcomes for populations at risk for disparities, across hospital method, and disparities in care within hospitals patient populations, within a single hospital method. Exposures hospital patient demographics, hospital characteristics, and three measures of hospital performance, quality, cost and value, quality relative to cost. Results of 4,638 hospitals, 74% served a sufficient number of dual-eligible patients, and 42% served a sufficient number of black patients to apply CMS disparity methods by insurance and race. Of eligible hospitals, 17% had equitable readmission rates by insurance and 30% by race. Hospitals with equitable readmissions by insurance or race cared for a lower percentage of black patients, insurance, 1.9%, IQR, 0.2% to 8.8%, versus 3.3%, IQR, 0.7% to 10.8%, P less than 0.01, race, 7.6%, IQR, 3.2% to 16.6%, versus 9.3%, IQR, 4.0% to 19.0%, P equals 0.01, and differed from non-equitable hospitals in multiple domains, teaching status, geography, size, P less than 0.01. In examining equity by insurance, hospitals with low costs were more likely to have equitable readmissions, odds ratio, 1.57, 95% C, 1.38 to 1.77, and there was no relationship between quality and value and equity. In examining equity by race, hospitals with high overall quality were more likely to have equitable readmissions, odds ratio, 1.14, 95% C, 1.03 to 1.26, and there was no relationship between cost and value and equity. Conclusion and relevance A minority of hospitals achieved equitable readmissions. Notably, hospitals with equitable readmissions were characteristically different from those without. For example, hospitals with equitable readmissions served fewer black patients, 
reinforcing the role of structural racism in hospital-level inequities. Implementation of an equitable readmission measure must consider unequal distribution of at-risk patients among hospitals. Next article from Annals of Internal Medicine Real-World Effectiveness of BNT162b2 Against Infection and Severe Diseases in Children and Adolescents Background The efficacy of the BNT162b2 vaccine in pediatrics was assessed by randomized trials before the Omicron variant's emergence. The long-term durability of vaccine protection in this population during the Omicron period remains limited. Objective To assess the effectiveness of BNT162b2 in preventing infection and severe diseases with various strains of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in previously uninfected children and adolescents. Design Comparative effectiveness research accounting for underreported vaccination in three study cohorts, adolescents, 12 to 20 years, during the Delta phase and children, 5 to 11 years and adolescents, 12 to 20 years, during the Omicron phase. Setting a National Collaboration of Pediatric Health Systems, PetSNP. Participants 77392 adolescents, 45007 vaccinated, during the Delta phase and 111539 children, 5398 vaccinated, and 56080 adolescents, 21180 vaccinated, during the Omicron phase. Intervention First dose of the BNT162b2 vaccine versus no receipt of COVID-19 vaccine. Measurements. Outcomes of interest include documented infection, COVID-19 illness severity, admission to an intensive care unit, ICU, and cardiac complications. The effectiveness was reported as, one relative risk, 100, with confounders balanced via propensity score stratification. Results. During the Delta period, The estimated effectiveness of the BNT162b2 vaccine was 98.4%, 95% C, 98.1% to 98.7%, against documented infection among adolescents, with no statistically significant waning after receipt of the first dose. An analysis of cardiac complications did not suggest a statistically significant difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. During the Omicron period, The effectiveness against documented infection among children was estimated to be 74.3%, c, 72.2% to 76.2%. Higher levels of effectiveness were seen against moderate or severe COVID-19, 75.5%, c, 69.0% to 81.0%, and ICU admission with COVID-19, 84.9%, c, 64.8% to 93.5%. Among adolescents, the effectiveness against documented Omicron infection was 85.5%, c, 83.8% to 87.1%, with 84.8%, c, 77.3% to 89.9%, against moderate or severe COVID-19, and 91.5%, c, 69.5% to 97.6%, against ICU admission with COVID-19. The effectiveness of the BNT162b2 vaccine against the Omicron variant declined four months after the first dose and then stabilized. The analysis showed a lower risk for cardiac complications in the vaccinated group during the Omicron variant period. Limitation 
observational study design and potentially undocumented infection. Conclusion This study suggests that BNT162b2 was effective for various COVID-19-related outcomes in children and adolescents during the Delta and Omicron periods, and there is some evidence of waning effectiveness over time. Next article from Nature Medicine. Insights for Precision Oncology from the Integration of Genomic and Clinical Data of 13,880 Tumors from the 100,000 Genomes Cancer Program. The Cancer Program of the 100,000 Genomes Project was an initiative to provide whole genome sequencing, WGS, for patients with cancer, evaluating opportunities for precision cancer care within the UK National Healthcare System, NHS. Genomics England, alongside NHS England, analyzed WGS data from 13,880 solid tumors spanning 33 cancer types, integrating genomic data with real-world treatment and outcome data, within a secure research environment. Incidence of somatic mutations in genes recommended for standard-of-care testing varied across cancer types. For instance, in glioblastoma multiforme, Small variants were present in 94% of cases and copy number aberrations in at least one gene in 58% of cases, while sarcoma demonstrated the highest occurrence of actionable structural variants, 13%. Homologous recombination deficiency was identified in 40% of high-grade serous ovarian cancer cases with 30% linked to pathogenic germline variants, highlighting the value of combined somatic and germline analysis. The linkage of WGS and longitudinal life course clinical data allowed the assessment of treatment outcomes for patients stratified according to panganomic markers. Our findings demonstrate the utility of linking genomic and real-world clinical data to enable survival analysis to identify cancer genes that affect prognosis and advance our understanding of how cancer genomics impacts patient outcomes. Next article from British Medical Journal. Perinatal Depression at Risk of Mortality, Nationwide, Register-Based Study in Sweden. Abstract. Objective to determine whether women with perinatal depression are at an increased risk of death compared with women who did not develop the disorder and compared with full sisters. Design Nationwide, Register-Based Study. Setting Swedish National Registers, January 1, 2001 to December 31, 2018. Participants 86551 women with a first-ever diagnosis of perinatal depression ascertained through specialized care and use of antidepressants, and 865510 women who did not have perinatal depression were identified and matched based on age and calendar year delivery. To address familial confounding factors, comparisons were made between 275586 full sisters, women with perinatal depression, and equals 24473 and full sisters who did not have this disorder, and equals 246113, who gave at least one singleton birth during the study period. Main outcome measures primary outcome was death due to any cause. Secondary outcome was cause-specific deaths, e, unnatural and natural causes. Results 522 deaths, 0.82 per 1,000 person years, were reported among women with perinatal depression diagnosed at a median age of 31.0 years, interquartile range 27.0 to 35.0, over up to 18 years of follow-up. 
Compared with women who did not have perinatal depression, women with perinatal depression were associated with an increased risk of death, adjusted hazard ratio 2.11, 95% confidence interval 1.86 to 2.40. Similar associations were reported among women who had and did not have pre-existing psychiatric disorder. Risk of death seemed to be increased for postpartum than for antepartum depression, hazard ratio 2.71, 95% confidence interval 2.26 to 3.26, V1.62, 1.34 to 1.94. A similar association was noted for perinatal depression in the sibling comparison, 2.12, 1.16 1 to 3.88. The association was most pronounced within the first year after perinatal depression but remained up to 18 years after start of follow-up. An increased risk was associated with both unnatural and natural causes of death among women with perinatal depression, 4.28, 3.44-5.32, 1.16-1.64, with the strongest association noted for suicide, 6.34, 4.62-8.71, although suicide was rare, 0.23 per 1,000 person years. Conclusions even when accounting for familial factors, Women with clinically diagnosed perinatal depression were associated with an increased risk of death, particularly during the first year after diagnosis and because of suicide. Women who are affected, their families, and health professionals should be aware of these severe health hazards after perinatal depression. Next article from Lancet. Perinatal morbidity among women with a previous cesarean delivery, PRISMA trial, a cluster randomized trial. Background Women with a previous cesarean delivery face a difficult choice in their next pregnancy, planning another cesarean or attempting vaginal delivery, both of which are associated with potential maternal and perinatal complications. This trial aimed to assess whether a multifaceted intervention, which promoted person-centered decision-making and best practices, would reduce the risk of major perinatal morbidity among women with one previous cesarean delivery. Methods We conducted an open, multi-center, cluster-randomized, controlled trial of a multifaceted two-year intervention in 40 hospitals in Quebec among women with one previous cesarean delivery, in which hospitals were the units of randomization and women the units of analysis. Randomization was stratified according to level of care, using blocked randomization. Hospitals were randomly assigned, one-to-one, -to, -one, to the intervention group, implementation of best practices and provision of tools that aim to support decision-making about mode of delivery, including an estimation of the probability of vaginal delivery and an ultrasound estimation of the risk of uterine rupture, or the control group, no intervention. The primary outcome was a composite risk of major perinatal morbidity. This trial was registered with ISRCN, ISRCN 1534655. Findings 21,281 eligible women delivered during the study period, from April 1, 2016 to December 13, 2019, 10,514 in the intervention group and 10,767 in the control group. None were lost to follow-up. There was a significant reduction in the rate of major perinatal morbidity from the baseline period to the intervention period in the intervention group as compared with the control group adjusted odds ratio, or for incremental change over time, 0 middle.72, 95% C0 middle.52 to 0 middle.99, 
T equals 0 middle.042, adjusted risk difference 1 middle.2%, 95% C2 middle.0 to 0 middle.1. Major maternal morbidity was significantly reduced in the intervention group as compared with the control group, adjusted or 0 middle.54, 95% C0 middle.33 to 0 middle.89, T equals 0 middle.016. Minor perinatal and maternal morbidity, cesarean delivery, and uterine rupture rates did not differ significantly between groups. Interpretation A multifaceted intervention supporting women in their choice of mode of delivery and promoting best practices resulted in a significant reduction in rates of major perinatal and maternal morbidity, without an increase in the rate of cesarean or uterine rupture. Next article from Circulation. Inflammation and cholesterol as predictors of cardiovascular events among 13,970 contemporary high-risk patients with statin intolerance. Background. Among patients treated with statin therapy to guideline recommended cholesterol levels, residual inflammatory risk assessed by high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, HSCRP is at least as strong a predictor of future cardiovascular events as is residual risk assessed by low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, LDLC. Whether these relationships are present among statin-intolerant patients with higher LDLC levels is uncertain but has implications for the choice of preventive therapies, including bimpedoic acid, an agent that reduces both LDLC and HSCRP. Methods The Multinational Clear Outcomes Trial cholesterol-lowering via bimpedoic acid, an ACL-inhibiting regimen outcomes trial, randomly allocated 13,970 statin-intolerant patients to 180 mg of oral bimpedoic acid daily or matching placebo and followed them for a four-component composite of incident myocardial infarction, stroke, coronary revascularization, or cardiovascular death, and for all-cause mortality. Quartiles of increasing baseline HSCRP and LDLC were assessed as predictors of future adverse events after adjustment for traditional risk factors and randomized treatment assignment. Results Compared with placebo, bimpedoic acid reduced median HSCRP by 21.6% and mean LDLC levels by 21.1% at 6 months. Baseline HSCRP was significantly associated with the primary composite endpoint of major cardiovascular events, highest versus lowest HSCRP quartile, hazard ratio, HR, 1.43, 95% C, 1.24 to 1.65, cardiovascular mortality, HR, 2.00, 95% C, 1.53 to 2.61, and all-cause mortality, HR, 2.21. 95% C, 1.79 to 2.73. By contrast, the relationship of baseline LDLC quartile, highest versus lowest, to future events was smaller in magnitude for the primary composite cardiovascular endpoint, HR, 1.19, 95% C, 1.04 to 1.37, and neutral for cardiovascular mortality, HR, 0.90, 95% C. 0.70 to 1.17, and all-cause mortality, HR, 0.95, 95% C, 0.78 to 1.16. Risks were high for those with elevated HSCRP irrespective of LDLC level. 
Bimpedoic acid demonstrated similar efficacy in reducing cardiovascular events across all levels of HSCRP and LDLC. Conclusions Among contemporary statin intolerant patients, inflammation assessed by HSCRP predicted risk for future cardiovascular events and death more strongly than hyperlipidemia assessed by LDLC. Compared with placebo, Bimpedoic acid had similar efficacy for reducing cardiovascular risk across HSCRP and LDLC strata. American College of Cardiology Short and optimal duration of dual antiplatelet therapy after everolimus eluding cobalt chromium stent 2. The goal of the trial was to evaluate one-month dual antiplatelet therapy, DAPT, compared with 12-month DAPT among patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI. Study design. Randomized. Parallel. Patients undergoing PCI were randomized to one month of DAPT followed by clopidogrel monotherapy for five years, and equals 1,523 versus 12 months of DAPT followed by aspirin monotherapy for 5 years, and equals 1,522. Total number of enrollees, 3,045. Duration of follow-up, 1 year. Mean patient age, 68 years. Percentage female, 21%. Percentage with diabetes, 39%. Inclusion criteria. PCI with a cobalt-chromium everolimus eluding stent. No plan for staged PCI exclusion criteria. Need for oral anticoagulation. History of intracranial hemorrhage. Other salient features slash characteristics. Stable coronary artery disease, 62%. Principal findings. The primary outcome, death, myocardial infarction, knee, stent thrombosis, stroke, Timmy major slash minor bleeding at one year, occurred in 2.4% of the one-month DAPT group compared with 3.7% of the 12-month DAPT group, P for superiority equals 0.04. There was evidence of possible treatment interaction favoring 12 months of DAPT among those with chronic kidney disease. Secondary outcomes. Death Michigan, stent thrombosis or stroke at one year. 2.0% of 1-month DAPT group compared with 2.5% of 12-month DAPT group, P for non-inferiority equals 0.005 Timmy major slash minor bleeding at 1 year, 0.4% of 1-month DAPT group compared with 1.5% of 12-month DAPT group, P for superiority equals 0.004 Bleeding Academic Research Consortium, BARC, 3 or 5 bleeding at 1 year. Half a percent of one-month DAPT group compared with 1.8% of 12-month DAPT group, P for superiority equals 0.003. Primary endpoint, 2.8% in the one-month DAPT group compared with 3.0% in the 12-month DAPT group, P for superiority equals 0.68, P for non-inferiority equals 0.001, P for interaction between acute coronary syndrome, ACS, and stable coronary disease equals 0.052, P for interaction between high bleeding risk and non-high bleeding risk equals 0.95, P for interaction between complex and non-complex PCI equals 0.48 interpretation. Among the total cohort of patients undergoing PCI for stable and unstable cardiovascular disease, 
one month of DAPT followed by clopidogrel monotherapy was non-inferior to 12 months of DAPT followed by aspirin monotherapy at preventing net adverse clinical events. There was possible treatment interaction whereby there was a slight excess of net adverse ischemic events among ACS patients treated with one month of DAPT compared with 12 months of DAPT. Long-term outcomes also favored clopidogrel by reduction in cardiovascular outcomes without an increase in major bleeding. Treatment effective for iron and iron-deficient heart failure. Study questions. Is intravenous, 4, iron beneficial for patients with heart failure, HF, and iron deficiency? Methods. The investigators conducted a literature search for randomized controlled trials, RCTs, and trials published in English between January 2000 and August 2023, limited to studies comparing 4-iron versus placebo in patients with iron deficiency and HF. Trials with cardiac transplant recipients or those using oral iron were excluded. Trial bias was assessed using the Cochrane Risk of Bias tool for RCTs. There were four primary efficacy endpoints for data extraction, cardiovascular, CV, death, the combined endpoint of CV mortality and heart failure hospitalization, HFH, first HFH, and total HFH. A fixed effects model was used for the primary analysis. The effect size estimate was an odds ratio, or, with 95% confidence intervals, C's. For recurrent events, a rate ratio, RR, with 95% C's was used. Results The meta-analysis included 14 RCTs. Data from 6,624 participants were included, with 3,407 treated with 4 iron and 3,217 with placebo. In nine of the trials, the treatment was ferric carboxymaltose. Other forms of 4-iron were used in four trials, and one trial used a combination of ferric carboxymaltose and iron sucrose. The effect of treatment with 4-iron was described as borderline for CV death, or 0.867, 95% C, 0.755 to 0.995, P equals 0.0427. Its effect on the combined endpoint of CV death and HFH was statistically significant, or 0.838, 95% C, 0.751 to 0.935, P equals 0.0015. The effect was significant both with first HFH, or 0.855, 95% C, 0.744 to 0.983, P equals 0.0281, and recurrent HFH, RR, 0.739, 95% C, 0.661 to 0.827, P less than 0.001. No treatment interaction was found for trials using ferric carboxymaltose versus non-ferric carboxymaltose compounds. A sensitivity analysis, which used a random effects model, showed similar outcomes, although the effect was more pronounced for the combined endpoint of CV death and the HFH, or 0.781, first HFH, or 0.774, and total HFH, or 0.668. Trials of up to 24 weeks in duration showed similar effects compared with those of longer duration. Trials in which the baseline mean ZOT was less than or equal to 20% tended to show a reduction in HFH events, whereas those with a higher mean baseline ZOT did not. Conclusions In patients with HF and iron deficiency, 
treatment with 4-iron reduces both CV deaths and HFH. The reductions in HFH are influenced by baseline transferrin saturation, TSAT, levels, with greater benefit accruing in those with lower baseline ZOT. Next article from Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. A randomized clinical trial of intravenous methylprednisolone with two protocols in patients with Graves' orbitopathy. Context. Intravenous glucocorticoid, IBGC, is an accessible and affordable treatment for Graves' orbitopathy, GO. The 4.5-gram protocol is well studied, but many details of treatment protocols need to be clarified. Objective. To compare the efficacy and safety of weekly and monthly protocol of IVGC in GO. Methods A prospective, randomized, observer-masked, single-center clinical trial, followed up to week 24, at the third affiliated hospital of Southern Medical University, 58 patients with active and moderate to severe GO, aged 18 to 60 years old, who had not received relevant treatment were included. The intervention was weekly protocol or monthly protocol of IVGC, both received a cumulative dose of methylprednisolone 4.5 grams and had a duration of 12 weeks. The overall effective rate, improvement of quality of life, QL, and signal intensity ratio, SIR, were measured. Results There was no significant difference in the effective rate between the two groups at week 12 and week 24, 86.21% versus 72.41%, P equals 0.195, 86.21% versus 82.61%, P equals 0.441, there was no significant difference in the improvement of clinical activity score, exophthalmus, soft tissue involvement, diplopia, and cull. At week 24, the mean SIR and maximum SIR of the two groups were lower than those before treatment, and there were no statistically significant difference between the two groups. There was no significant difference in the incidence of adverse events between the two groups, 31.03% versus 27.59%, P equals 0.773. Conclusion The efficacy and safety of the two protocols are comparable. The monthly protocol could be used as an alternative to the weekly protocol. Metabolites as Risk Factors for Diabetic Retinopathy in Patients with Type 2 Diabetes, a 12-Year Follow-Up Study Context Diabetic Retinopathy, DR, is a specific microvascular complication in patients with diabetes and the leading cause of blindness. Recent advances in omics, especially metabolomics, offer the possibility identifying novel potential biomarkers for DR. Objective the aim was to identify metabolites associated with DR. Methods We performed a 12-year follow-up study including 1,349 participants with type 2 diabetes, 1,021 without drive, 328 with drive, selected from the Medicine cohort. Individuals who had retinopathy before the baseline study were excluded, and equals 63. The diagnosis of retinopathy was based on fundus photography examination. We performed non-targeted metabolomics profiling to identify metabolites. Results We found 17 metabolites significantly associated with incident DR after adjustment for confounding factors. Among amino acids, and lactyl isoleucine, 
and lactoalvaline, and lactoaltyrosine, and lactoalphenylalanine, and 2-furoyl, glycine, and 5-hydroxylysine were associated with an increased risk of DR, and citrulline with a decreased risk of DR. Among the fatty acids N, N, and trimethyl 5 amino valerate was associated with an increased risk of DR, and meristoliate, 14 1N5, palmitoliate, 16 1N7, and 5 dodazeno 8, 12 1N7, with a decreased risk of DR. Sphingomyelin, D18 224 2, a sphingolipid, was significantly associated with a decreased risk of DR. Carboxylic acid maleate and organic compounds 3-hydroxypyridine sulfate, 4-vinylphenyl sulfate, 4-ethylcatechol sulfate, and dimethyl sulfone were significantly associated with an increased risk of DR. Conclusion Our study is the first large population-based longitudinal study to identify metabolites for DR. We found multiple metabolites associated with an increased and decreased risk for DR from several different metabolic pathways. Next article from Journal of Hepatology. A Perspective, Multicenter, Three-Cohort Study Evaluating Contrast-Induced Acute Kidney Injury, see Aki, in Patients with Cirrhosis. Background and Names. Nephrotoxicity of Intravenous Iodinated Contrast Media, ICM, in cirrhosis is still a debated issue, due to scarce, low-quality and conflicting evidence. This study aims to evaluate the incidence and predisposing factors of acute kidney injury, AKI, in patients with cirrhosis undergoing contrast-enhanced computed tomography, CECT. Methods We performed a prospective, multicenter, cohort study including 444 inpatients, 148 with cirrhosis, cohort 1 and 163 without cirrhosis, cohort 3, undergoing KECT and 133 with cirrhosis, cohort 2, unexposed to ICM. Kidney function parameters were assessed at T0, 48 to 72 hours, T1, 5 and 7 days after KECT slash enrollment. Urinary neutrophil gelatinase associated lipocalin, Yungal, was measured in 50 consecutive patients from cohort 1 and 50 from cohort 2 as an early biomarker of tubular damage. Results. Aki incidence was not significantly increased in patients with cirrhosis undergoing KECT, 4.8%, 1.5%, 2.5% in cohorts 1, 2, 3 respectively, P equals NS. Most Aki cases were mild and transient. The presence of concomitant infections was the only independent predictive factor of contrast-induced Aki, odds ratio 22.18. 95% C2.87 to 171.22, P equals 0.003. No significant modifications of Yungle between T0 and T1 were detected, neither in cohort 1 nor in cohort 2, median delta Yungle, plus 0.2, minus 7.6 to plus 5.5, ing slash ml, plus 0.0, minus 6.8 to plus 9.5, ing slash ml, respectively, P equals 0.682. Conclusions Aki risk after cactin cirrhosis is low and not significantly different from that of the general population or of the cirrhotic population unexposed to ICM. It mostly consists of mild and rapidly resolving episodes of renal dysfunction and it is not associated with tubular kidney injury. Patients with ongoing infections appear to be the only ones at higher risk of Aki. 
Impact and Implications Nephrotoxicity due to intravenous iodinated contrast media, ICM, in patients with cirrhosis is still a debated issue, as the available evidence is limited and based on very heterogeneous studies, often conducted on small and retrospective cohorts. In this prospective three-cohort study we found that intravenous administration of ICM was associated with a low risk of Aki, similar to that of the general population and to that of patients with cirrhosis unexposed to ICM. Patients with ongoing infections were the only ones to have a significantly increased risk of contrast-induced Aki. Therefore, the actual recommendations of performing contrast imaging studies cautiously in cirrhosis do not seem to be reasonable anymore, with the exception of infected patients, who have a significantly higher risk of contrast-induced Aki. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology and Hepatology. Helicobacter pylori burden in the United States according to individual demographics and geography, a nationwide analysis of the veterans' healthcare system. Background and aims. There are no contemporary large-scale studies evaluating the burden of helicobacter pylori in the United States according to detailed demographics. The primary objective was to evaluate H. pylori positivity in a large national healthcare system according to individual demographics and geography. Methods We conducted a nationwide retrospective analysis of adults in the Veterans Health Administration who completed H. pylori testing between 1999 and 2018. The primary outcome was H. pylori positivity overall, as well as according to zip code level geography, race, ethnicity, age, sex, and time period. Results Among 913,328 individuals, mean, 58.1 years, 90.2% male, included between 1999 and 2018, H. pylori was diagnosed in 25.8%. Positivity was highest in non-Hispanic black, median, 40.2%, 95% confidence interval, c, 40.0% to 40.5%, and Hispanic, 36.7%, 95% C, 36.4% to 37.1%, individuals and lowest in non-Hispanic white individuals, 20.1%, 95% C, 20.0% to 20.2%. Although H. pylori positivity declined in all racial and ethnic groups over the time frame, the disproportionate burden of H. pylori in non-Hispanic black and Hispanic compared with non-Hispanic white individuals persisted. Approximately 4.7% of the variation in H. pylori positivity was explained by demographics, with race and ethnicity accounting for the vast majority. Conclusions The burden of H. pylori is substantial in the United States among veterans. These data should, 1. Motivate research aimed at better understanding why marked demographic differences in H. pylori burden persists, so that mitigating interventions may be implemented and, 2. Guide resource allocation to optimize H. pylori testing and eradication in high-risk groups. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitors in inflammatory bowel disease and risk of immune-mediated inflammatory diseases. Background and aims. Tumor necrosis factor inhibitors, anti-TNF, are effective therapies for several immune-mediated inflammatory diseases, IMIDs. 
However, case reports have identified the paradoxical occurrence of IMIDs in patients treated with anti-TNF. We study the risk of rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and hydrodenitis suppurativa after the initiation of anti-TNF therapy for inflammatory bowel disease, IBD. Methods We conducted two nationwide cohort studies comprising all patients with IBD in Denmark, 2005-2018, and France, 2008-2018. We obtained individual-level information on exposure to anti-TNF, diagnoses of IMIDs including rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and hydrodenitis suppurativa, and potential confounders from healthcare registers in the respective countries. We use Cox models to estimate hazard ratios, HRs, for the association between anti-TNF exposure and IMIDs and then pool the estimates from the two cohorts. To test the robustness of our results, we performed an active comparator analysis of anti-TNF monotherapy versus azathioprine monotherapy. Results The Danish and French cohorts comprised 18,258 and 88,786 subjects with IBD, respectively, contributing a total of 516,055 person-years of follow-up. Anti-TNF was associated with an increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and hydrodenitis suppurativa in both the Danish, HR, 1.66, 95% confidence interval, C, 1.34 to 2.07, and the French cohort, HR, 1.78, 95% C, 1.63 to 1.94, with a pooled HR 1.76, 95% C, 1.63 to 1.91. Anti-TNF was also associated with an increased risk of the outcomes when compared with azathioprine, pooled HR, 2.94, 95% C, 2.33 to 3.70. Conclusions In two nationwide cohorts of IBD patients, anti-TNF therapy was associated with an increased risk of rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, and hydrodenitis suppurativa. Next article from Clinical Gastroenterology. A Delphi method for development of a Barrett's esophagus question prompt list as a communication tool for optimal patient-physician communication. Background Methods. The question prompt list content was derived through a modified Delphi process consisting of three rounds. In round one, experts provided five answers to the prompts what general questions should patients ask when given a new diagnosis of Barrett's esophagus and what questions do I not hear patients asking, but given my expertise, I believe they should be asking? Questions were reviewed and categorized into themes. In round two, experts rated questions on a five-point Likert scale. In round three, Experts re-rated questions modified or reduced after the previous rounds. Only questions rated as essential or important were included in Barrett's esophagus question prompt list, BQPL. To improve usability, questions were reduced to minimize redundancy and simplify to use language at an 8th grade level, figure 1. Results 21 esophageal medical and surgical experts participated in both rounds, 91% males, median age 52 years. The expert panel comprised of 33% esophagologists, 24% foregut surgeons, and 24% advanced endoscopists, with a median of 15 years in clinical practice. Most, 81%, worked in an academic tertiary referral hospital. 
In this three-round Delphi technique, 220 questions were proposed in round 1, 122, 55.5%, were accepted into the BQPL and reduced down to 76 questions, round 2, and 67 questions, round 3. These 67 questions reached the flesh reading ease of 68.8, interpreted as easily understood by 13 to 15 years olds. Conclusions With multidisciplinary input, we have developed a physician-derived BQPL to optimize patient-physician communication. Future directions will seek patient feedback to distill the questions further to a smaller number and then assess their usability. Next article from Chest. Is tobacco use associated with risk of recurrence and mortality among people with TB? A systematic review and meta-analysis. Background. Associations between tobacco use and poor TB treatment outcomes are well documented. However, for important outcomes such as TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment, as well as for associations with smokeless tobacco, SD, the evidence is not summarized systematically. Research question. Is tobacco use associated with risk of poor treatment outcomes among people with TB? Study design and methods. The Medline, Embase, and Cumulative Index of Nursing and Allied Health Literature Databases were searched on November 22, 2021. Epidemiologic studies reporting associations between tobacco use and at least one TB treatment outcome were eligible. Independent double screening, extractions, and quality assessments were undertaken. Random effects meta-analyses were conducted for the two primary review outcomes, TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment, and heterogeneity was explored using subgroups. Other outcomes were synthesized narratively. Results Our searches identified 1,249 records, of which 28 were included in the meta-analyses. Based on 15 studies, Higher risk of TB recurrence or relapse was found with ever using tobacco versus never using tobacco, risk ratio RR, 1.78, 95% C, 1.31 to 2.43, I2 equals 85%, current tobacco use versus no tobacco use, RR, 1.95, 95% C, 1.59 to 2.40, I2 equals 72%, and former tobacco use versus never using tobacco RR, 1.84, 95% C, 1.21 to 2.80, I2 equals 4%. Heterogeneity arose from differences in study quality, design, and participant characteristics. 38 studies were identified for mortality, of which 13 reported mortality during treatment. Ever tobacco use RR, 1.55, 95% C, 1.32 to 1.81, I2 equals 0% and current tobacco use, RR, 1.51, 95% C, 1.09 to 2.10, I2 equals 87%, significantly increased the likelihood of mortality during treatment among people with TB compared with never using tobacco and not currently using tobacco, respectively. Heterogeneity was explained largely by differences in study design. Almost all studies in the meta-analyses scored high or moderate on quality assessments. Narrative synthesis showed that tobacco use was a risk factor for other unfavorable TB treatment outcomes, as previously documented. 
Evidence on ST was limited, but identified studies suggested an increased risk for poor outcomes with its use compared with not using it. Interpretation Tobacco use significantly increases the risk of TB recurrence or relapse and mortality during treatment among people with TB, highlighting the need to address tobacco use to improve TB outcomes. Next article from the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Application of Global Lung Function Initiative Global Spirometry Reference Equations Across a Large, Multicenter Pulmonary Function Lab Population. Rationale, Global Lung Function Initiative, GLI, Global Spirometry Reference Equations were recently derived to offer a race-neutral interpretation option. The impact of transitioning from the race-specific GLI 2012 to the GLI global reference equations is unknown. Objectives, describe the direction and magnitude of changes in predicted lung function measurements in a population of diverse race and ethnicity using GLI global in place of GLI 2012 reference equations. Methods, in this multicenter cross-sectional study using a large pulmonary function laboratory database, 109,447 spirometry tests were reanalyzed using GLI global reference equations and compared with the existing GLI 2012 standard, stratified by self-reported race and ethnicity. Measurements and main results, mean FEV1 and FVC% percent predicted increased in the white and northeast Asian groups and decreased in the black, southeast Asian, and mixed-slash-other race groups. The prevalence of obstruction increased by 9.7% in the white group, and prevalences of possible restriction increased by 51.1% and 37.1% in the Black and Southeast Asian groups, respectively. Using GLI Global in a population with equal representation of all five race and ethnicity groups altered the interpretation category for 10.2% of spirometry tests. Subjects who self-identified as Black were the only group with a relative increase in the frequency of abnormal spirometry test results, 32.9%. Conclusions, the use of GLI global reference equations will significantly impact spirometry interpretation. Although GLI global offers an innovative approach to transition from race-specific reference equations, it is important to recognize the continued need to place these data within an appropriate clinical context. Next article is from Clinical Journal of American Society of Nephrology. Performance of ChatGPT on Nephrology Test Questions Background ChatGPT is a novel tool that allows people to engage in conversations with an advanced machine learning model. ChatGPT's performance in the U.S. medical licensing examination is comparable with a successful candidate's performance. However, its performance in the nephrology field remains undetermined. This study assessed ChatGPT's capabilities in answering nephrology test questions. Methods Question source from Nephrology Self-Assessment Program and Kidney Self-Assessment Program were used, each with multiple-choice single-answer questions. Questions containing visual elements were excluded. Each question bank was run twice using GPT-3.5 and GPT-4. Total accuracy rate defined as the percentage of correct answers obtained by ChatGPT in either the first or second run, and the total concordance, defined as the percentage of identical answers provided by ChatGPT during both runs, regardless of their correctness, 
were used to assess its performance. Results A comprehensive assessment was conducted on a set of 975 questions, comprising 508 questions from Nephrology Self-Assessment Program and 467 from Kidney Self-Assessment Program. GPT-3.5 resulted in a total accuracy rate of 51%. Notably, the employment of Nephrology Self-Assessment Program yielded a higher accuracy rate compared with Kidney Self-Assessment Program, 58% versus 44%, p less than 0.001. The total concordance rate across all questions was 78%, with correct answers exhibiting a higher concordance rate, 84%, compared with incorrect answers, 73%, p less than 0.001. When examining various nephrology subfields, the total accuracy rates were relatively lower in electrolyte and acid-based disorder, glomerular disease and kidney-related bone and stone disorders. The total accuracy rate of GPT-4's response was 74%, higher than GPT-3.5, p less than 0.001 but remained below the passing threshold and average scores of nephrology examinees, 77%. Conclusions ChatGPT exhibited limitations regarding accuracy and repeatability when addressing nephrology-related questions. Variations in performance were evident across various subfields. Next article is from Kidney International Reports. Higher nocturnal blood pressure and blunted nocturnal dipping are associated with decreased daytime urinary sodium and potassium excretion in patients with CKD. Introduction Sodium homeostasis is intimately associated with blood pressure, BP, rhythm, and potassium excretion is closely associated with sodium excretion in the general population. However, the association between circadian sodium and potassium pattern excretion and nocturnal BP in patients with chronic kidney disease, CKD, is not elucidated. Methods We evaluated the correlation between the day-to-night ratio of urinary sodium and potassium excretion rate, nocturnal blood pressure, and nocturnal BP dipping in a CKD cohort. Results A total of 3,152, 56.76% males, mean age 47.63 years, individuals with CKD were included in the study. Patients in quartile 1, with the lowest ratio, exhibited a 12 mm of mercury or 9 mm of mercury higher nocturnal systolic blood pressure, SBP and blunted SBP dipping than those in quartile 4 when urinary sodium or potassium excretion rate was divided into day-to-night ratios, both p less than 0.001. In multivariate analyses, Lower day-to-night ratio of urinary sodium was independently linked to higher nocturnal SBP than blunted SBP dipping, linear regression coefficient, 95% confidence interval, C, minus 6.89, minus 9.48 to minus 4.31, and minus 3.64, minus 5.48 to minus 1.80, respectively, both P less than 0.001. Similarly, Compared with the highest quartile of day-to-night ratio of urinary potassium excretion rate, linear regression coefficient, 95% C, for the lowest quartile was minus 5.60, minus 8.13 to minus 3.07, for nocturnal SBP, and minus 2.47, minus 4.28 to minus 0.67, for SBP dipping, 
both p less than 0.001. Moreover, urine flow rate and concentrates of sodium or potassium in the urine were positively associated with urinary sodium or potassium excretion during daytime, p less than 0.001. Conclusion A higher nocturnal BP and a blunted nocturnal BP dipping were both independently linked to a lower excretion of sodium or potassium during the day in patients with CKD. Furthermore, a decreased urine flow rate and a diminished capacity to concentrate sodium or potassium in the urine appear to be the key contributors to a low day-to-night ratio of urinary sodium excretion or potassium rate. Validation of a core patient reported outcome measure for life participation in kidney transplant recipients, the song Life Participation Instrument. Introduction Life participation has been established as a critically important core for trials in kidney transplantation. We aim to validate a patient reported outcome measure for life participation in kidney transplant recipients. Methods A psychometric evaluation of the standardized outcomes in nephrology life participation. Song LP, measure was conducted in adult kidney transplant recipients. The measure includes four items of life participation, leisure, family, work, and social, each with a five-point Likert scale. Each item is scored from zero, never, to four, always, and the summary measure score the average of each item. Results A total of 249 adult kidney transplant recipients from 20 countries participated. The song LP instrument demonstrated internal consistency, Chromebox alpha equals 0.87, 95% confidence intervals, C, 0.83 to 0.90, baseline, and test-retest reliability over one week, intraclass correlation coefficient of 0.62, 95% C, 0.54 to 0.70. There was moderate to high correlation, 0.65, 95% C, 0.57 to 0.72, with the promisability to participate in social roles and activities short form 8A that assessed a similar construct, and moderate correlation with measures that assessed related concepts, i.e., EQ5D 0.57, 95% C, 0.49 to 0.65, promise cognitive functional abilities subset short form 4A, 0.40, 95% C, 0.29 to 0.50. Conclusion The song LP instrument is a simple, internally consistent, reliable measure for kidney transplant recipients and correlates with similar measures. Routine incorporation in clinical trials will ensure consistent and appropriate assessment of life participation for informed patient-centered decision-making. Post-reperfusion renal allograft biopsy predicts outcome of single kidney transplantation, a 10-year observational study in China. Introduction Biopsy findings often lead to the discard of many donor kidneys although their clinical value is not fully understood. We investigated the predictive value of post-reperfusion biopsy on long-term allograft outcome after single kidney transplantation. Methods We retrospectively evaluated the significance of histologic findings, read by experienced renal pathologists, in 461 post-reperfusion biopsy specimens collected from 2010 to 2017 after deceased donor renal transplant, 
and performed time-to-event analyzes to determine the association between histology and hazard-of-death sensor graft failure. Recipients were followed up with over a median time of 6.8, range, 0.2 to 11.9, years. We assessed specimens using the Ramuzzi score, scale of 0 to 12, and categorized them into low score, less than or equal to 3, and high score, greater than 3, groups. CAPA coefficients were calculated to assess agreement in procurement versus reperfusion biopsies. Results High Ramuzzi score kidneys came from older donors with a higher incidence of hypertension, higher final creatinine, death from cerebrovascular disease, expanded criteria donor, and a higher kidney donor risk index, KDRI, all p less than 0.001. In adjusted analyzes, Ramuzzi score was independently associated with death-censored graft failure, hazard ratio, HR, 1.389 for each one score rise in Ramuzzi score, 95% confidence interval 1.181 to 1.633, p less than 0.001. Overall histologic agreement, procurement biopsy versus reperfusion biopsy, was kappa equals 0.137. Conclusion Our findings suggest that post-reperfusion biopsy is associated with long-time graft outcomes after transplant from a deceased donor. Agreement between procurement and reperfusion biopsy was found to be low. Prospective trials are necessary to optimize procurement biopsy practices. Next article from Neurology Exploring Factors That Prolong the Diagnosis of Myasthenia Gravis Background and Objectives Myasthenia Gravis, MG, is a condition with significant phenotypic variability, posing a diagnostic challenge to many clinicians worldwide. Prolonged diagnosis can lead to reduced remission rates and morbidity. This study aimed to identify factors leading to a longer time to diagnosis in MG that could be addressed in future to optimize diagnosis time. Methods 110 patients from three institutions in Melbourne, Australia, were included in this retrospective cohort study. Demographic and clinical data were collected for these patients over the first five years from diagnosis and at 10 years. Nonparametric statistical analysis was used to identify factors contributing to a longer diagnosis time. Results The median time for MG diagnosis was 102, 345 days. 90% of patients were diagnosed before one year. Female patients took longer than male patients to be diagnosed, p equals 0.013. The time taken for first presentation after symptom onset contributed most to diagnosis time, median 17, 141, days, with female patients and not working as contributory factors. Neurology referral took longer if patients had diplopia, p equals 0.022, respiratory, p equals 0.026, Symptoms or saw an ophthalmologist first, p less than 0.001. Outpatient management compared with inpatient was associated with a longer time to be seen by a neurologist from referral, p less than 0.001, for the first diagnostic result to return, p equals 0.001, and for the result to be reviewed, p less than 0.001. Ocular MG had a median greater time to neurologist review than generalized MG, Median 5, 25, days versus 1, 13, days, p equals 0.035.
Electrophysiology tests took longer for outpatients than inpatients, median 21, 35, days versus 2, 8, days, fee less than 0.001. Outpatients were also started on treatment later than inpatients, p less than 0.001. There was no association of MG severity, ethnicity, age, medical and ocular comorbidities, and public or private health service on diagnosis time. There was also no impact of time to diagnosis on myasthenia gravis foundation of America outcomes, number of follow-ups or hospitalizations or prevalence of treatments used. This study is limited by low patient numbers and its retrospective nature. Discussion This study identified several factors that can contribute to a prolonged diagnosis time of MG. Patient and clinician education about MG and outpatient diagnostic efficiency needs emphasis. Further studies are also needed to explore the delayed presentation time of women and unworking patients in MG. Next article from JAMA Neurology. Abgenotype in Alzheimer's disease risk across age, sex, and population ancestry. Importance apolipoprotein E, APOE, 2 and AP4R, respectively, the strongest protective and risk-increasing, common genetic variants for late-onset Alzheimer's disease AD, making AP status highly relevant toward clinical trial design and AD research broadly. The associations of AP genotypes with AD are modulated by age, sex, race and ethnicity, and ancestry, but these associations remain unclear, particularly among racial and ethnic groups understudied in the AD and genetics research fields. Objective to assess the stratified associations of AP genotypes with AD risk across sex, age, race and ethnicity, and global population ancestry. Design, setting, participants This genetic association study included case control, family-based, population-based, and longitudinal AD-related cohorts that recruited referred and volunteer participants. Data were analyzed between March 2022 and April 2023. Genetic data were available from high-density, single-nucleotide variant microarrays, exome microarrays, and whole-exome and whole-genome sequencing. Summary statistics were ascertained from published AD genetic studies. Main outcomes and measures The main outcomes were risk for AD, odds ratios, ORs, and risk of conversion to AD, hazard ratios, HRs, with 95% Cs. Risk for AD was evaluated through case control logistic regression analyses. Risk of conversion to AD was evaluated through Cox proportional hazards regression survival analyses. Results among 68,756 unique individuals, analyses included 21,852 East Asian, demographic data not available, 5,738 Hispanic, 68.2% female, mean, SD, age, 75.4, 8.8, 75.4, 8.8, years, 7,145 non-Hispanic black, hereafter referred to as black 70.8% female, mean, SD, age, 78.4, 8.2, years, and 34021 non-Hispanic white, hereafter referred to as white 59.3% female, mean, SD, age, 77.0, 9.1, years, individuals. There was a general, Stepwise pattern of ORs for AP4 genotypes and AD risk across race and ethnicity groups. Odds ratios for AP34 and AD risk attenuated following East Asian OR 4.54, 
95% C, 3.99 to 5.17 white or 3.46, 95% C, 3.27 to 3.65 black or 2.18, 95% C, 1.90 to 2.49 and Hispanic or 1.90, 95% C, 1.65 to 2.18 individuals. Similarly, ORS for AP 22 plus 23 and AD risk attenuated following white, OR, 0.53, 95% C, 0.48 to 0.58, black, OR, 0.69, 95% C, 0.57 to 0.84, and Hispanic, OR, 0.89, 95% C, 0.72 to 1.10, individuals, with no association for Hispanic individuals. Conclusion and relevance through recent advances in AD-related genetic cohorts, this study provided the largest to-date overview of the association of AP with AD risk across age, sex, race and ethnicity, and population ancestry. These novel insights are critical to guide AD clinical trial design and research. Next article from Journal of Clinical Oncology. Prophylactic Radiation Therapy versus Standard of Care for Patients with High-Risk Asymptomatic Bone Metastases, a Multicenter, Randomized Phase II Clinical Trial. Purpose. External Beam Radiation Therapy, RT, is Standard of Care, SOC, for Pain Relief of Symptomatic Bone Metastases. We aim to evaluate the efficacy of radiation to asymptomatic bone metastases in preventing skeletal-related events, SRE. Methods In a multicenter randomized controlled trial, adult patients with widely metastatic solid tumor malignancies were stratified by histology and planned SOAK, systemic therapy or observation, and randomly assigned in a one-to-one ratio to receive RT to asymptomatic high-risk bone metastases or SOAK alone. The primary outcome of the trial was SRE. Secondary outcomes included hospitalizations for SRE and overall survival, OS. Results A total of 78 patients with 122 high-risk bone metastases were enrolled between May 8, 2018, and August 9, 2021, at three institutions across an affiliated cancer network in the United States. 73 patients were evaluable for the primary endpoint. The most common primary cancer types were lung, 27%, breast, 24%, and prostate, 22%. At one year, SRE occurred in one of 62 bone metastases, 1.6%, in the RT arm and 14 of 49 bone metastases, 29%, in the SOAK arm, P less than 0.001. There were significantly fewer patients hospitalized for SRE in the RT arm compared with the SOAK arm, 0v4, P equals 0.045. At a median follow-up of 2.5 years, OS was significantly longer in the RT arm, hazard ratio, HR, 0.49, 95% C, 0.27 to 0.89, P equals 0.018, which persisted on multivariable Cox regression analysis, HR, 0.46, 95% C, 0.23 to 0. Next article from Journal of Clinical Rheumatology. Burden of Other Musculoskeletal Disorders in Latin America and the Caribbean, Findings of Global Burden of Disease Study 2019. Objective. To describe the results from the Global Burden Disease, GBD, 
Study 2019 on the Burden of Other Musculoskeletal, MSK, Disorders in Latin America and the Caribbean, LAC. Methods In this cross-sectional study, we analyzed data from all LAC region in the GBD study from 1990 to 2019. Other MSK, other than rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, gout, low back pain, and neck pain, burden was measured as prevalence, mortality, years lived with disability, yield, and disability-adjusted life, DALY by year, sex, and country. We show the counts, rates, and 95% uncertainty intervals, 95% UI. Joint point regression analysis was used to estimate the average annual percentage change, AAPC, from 1990 to 2019. A correlational analysis between the burden parameters and sociodemographic index, SDI, was performed. Results In 2019, there were 52.0 million, 95% UI, 44.8 to 60.1 million, individuals with other MSK disorders in LAC. The age standardized mortality rate in 2019 was 1.2, 95% UI, 0.8 to 1.6, per 100,000 inhabitants. The OP was estimated as 0.1%, 95% confidence interval, C, 0.1 to 0.2, and 0.2%, 95% C, 0.1 to 0.3, for prevalence and mortality rates, respectively. The age standardized daily rate was 685.4, 95% UI, 483.6 to 483.6, per 100,000 inhabitants, representing an OPC of 0.2%, 95% C, 0.1 to 0.3. The burden was larger in women and the elderly. The SDI was positively correlated with the prevalence of yield in 2019. Conclusions LAC region has experienced a significant burden of other MSK disorders over the last three decades. To challenge this growing burden, population-based strategies designed to reduce the burden of other MSK and strengthen health systems to contribute effective and cost-efficient care are necessary. Next article from Arthritis and Rheumatology Distinct scleroderma autoantibody profiles stratify patients for cancer risk at scleroderma onset and during the disease course. Objectives We examined whether an array of scleroderma autoantibodies associates with risk of cancer and could be useful tools for risk stratification. Methods Scleroderma cancer cases and scleroderma controls without cancer from the Johns Hopkins Scleroderma Center and the University of Pittsburgh Scleroderma Center were studied. Sarah were assayed by Lineblad and enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, ELISA, for autoantibodies against centromere, toposomerase 1, RNA polymerase, POLR, 3, PM slash SCL, TH slash 2, NOR 90, U3 RNP, KU, row 52, U1 RNP, and RNPC3. Logistic regression models were constructed to examine whether distinct autoantibodies associated with overall cancer any time and cancer-associated scleroderma, cancer occurring three years before and after scleroderma onset. The effects of having more than one autoantibody on cancer were further examined using random forest analysis. Results A total of 676 cases and 687 controls were studied. After adjusting for relevant covariates, anti-polar 3, odds ratio or, 1.47, 95% confidence interval, C, 
1.03 to 2.11, and monospecific anti-Rho 52 or 2.19, 95% C1.29 to 3.74, were associated with an increased overall cancer risk, whereas anti-centromere, or 0.69, 95% C0.51 to 0.93, and anti-U1RNP, or 0.63, 95% C0.43 to 0.93 were associated with lower risk. When examining risk of cancer-associated scleroderma, these immune responses remained associated with increased or decreased risk anti-polar 3 or 2.28, 95% C1.33 to 3.91, monospecific anti-Rho52 or 2.58, 95% C1.05 to 6.30, anti-centromere, or 0.39, 95% C0.20 to 0.74, and anti-U1RNP, or 0.32, 95% C0.11 to 0.93. Anti-Rho52 plus anti-U1RNP or anti-TH-2 was associated with decreased cancer risk compared with anti-Rho52 alone. Conclusions These data suggest that five distinct scleroderma immune responses, alone or in combination, may be useful tools to stratify the risk of cancer for scleroderma patients. Further study examining cancer risk in autoantibody subgroups relative to the general population is warranted. Thank you for listening to This Week in Medicine, your filtered medical journal summary. Have a great week ahead, stay blessed and be humane.